This episode of On the Beat is brought to you by Ingles. Shop online with Ingles curbside pickup. New curbside stores opening every week. Please welcome Mike Griffith. Well, hey everybody, Mike Griffith here. Welcome to tonight's Ingles On the Beat presentation. Looking forward to talking to you about the Tennessee Georgia football game. And of course, one versus two. Never happened before there at Sanford Stadium. The Bulldogs, a nine-point favorite last I checked. News today from Kirby Smart's press conference. Kirby telling us Nolan Smith doubtful. The team's sack leader uh, suffered a pectoral injury. Kirby said they'll do an MRI, but right now it looks doubtful. Uh, not good, right? Uh, the good news was that Jalen Carter came back and played 20 snaps, and he was outstanding, and he's going to be key to this game. And during the second half of the show, we're going to bring Jeremy Pruitt on, and he's going to explain why Jalen Carter could be a difference maker in this game. Kirby Smart said after the game the other night, he didn't really realize just how impactful Jalen was until he went back and looked at the film, and Jalen Carter is playing like the top five pick that he is. This is great news for the Georgia Bulldogs. Kendall Milton still bothered by a quad strain. Uh, A.D. Mitchell, a player who's been out with a high ankle sprain. Uh, Kirby said he wasn't certain about his status. That would be the other big one to pay attention to is A.D. Mitchell. You know Jalen Carter's back. You're still holding out hope that Nolan Smith can go. Robert Beal slid down, played in his spot, but you're really hoping to have Nolan back. Uh, and A.D. Mitchell, another guy that would have a game-changing impact. Kendall Milton as well, at his best, uh, one of the top runners that you'll find. So uh, Mary Smims, uh, Kirby said, yeah, the sprain, knee, not as bad as what Jalen had that kept him out a couple games, still holding out some hope uh, that maybe Amaris Mims would be able to go. Don't expect Xavier Trust to miss time with the toe, nor Warren McClendon with the shoulder. So the dog's in pretty good shape. The fact you've got Jalen Carter back is, is ideal. Uh, the fact you lost Noel Smith, perhaps, is not so ideal. You got to think A.D. Mitchell's close, though. And that's going to make a big difference because I think we would all agree that George is going to have to score some points in this game. And I said it earlier. I'll say it again. I don't think this is a stretch. Stetson Bennett's got to play better against Tennessee than he did against Florida. Stetson completed about half of his passes against the Gators. And yes, there were some balls that the receivers dropped, Darnell Washington in particular, but there was also a great play made by Brock Bowers on a ball that could have been picked off. So Stetson finished that game completing about 50% of his passes with two interceptions. Uh, got to play a little better than that. Only one run in that game. This next game against Tennessee, this is a game where Stetson can really hurt the Vols with his feet. Last year, he changed the game with his feet. So uh, this is going to be a big game for Stetson Bennett. Obviously we've talked about it. I've written about it. Carson Beck is in the bullpen. If needed injury, slow start, whatever. Uh, Georgia does not want to have to play from behind against this Tennessee team with their tempo. Uh, when Tennessee's playing from behind, they get a little bit more predictable. They can't be as patient with the run game. And, and really that's where this starts. Both Kirby Smart and Jeremy Pruitt telling us that, you know, hey, look, you know, Tennessee is, a, is one of the top running teams in the country. They're known best for their pass game, but they can also run the ball. Uh, they do a really nice job on the ground. And this is where Kirby's going to try to make them one-dimensional. This is also another area where Jalen Carter is so important. Nazir Stackhouse had a great game against the Florida Gators with five tackles. You're going to need to see Nazir stack up. More Zion Logue. Need to see more of these guys stepping up, playing at their best, bringing their A game. Every snap is going to matter. Now, you've heard Kirby bring this up more than once now, the noise at Sanford Stadium. 
And I've been covering college football for 30 years. And I could count on one hand the number of times that a crowd has actually affected a football game. One of those times was 2019 Sanford Stadium against Notre Dame. I don't believe Georgia beats Notre Dame in 2019 on a neutral field, or certainly not in South Bend. But there were six motion penalties triggered by the crowd at Sanford Stadium against Notre Dame. I expect this environment to be even more heightened and off the charts. The noise is going to be unbelievable. So if you don't like loud noises, bring your earplugs, uh, but also bring your vocal cords because Kirby Smart is challenging everybody to yell to the point that they can't even talk after the game. And, and, and he's not just saying this, you know, for aesthetics, like this will really affect Tennessee and their ability to communicate on offense. They like to do different things at the line of scrimmage once they see what the defense is in, when they're not in hurry up mode or when they're in third down situations or after an incomplete pass, they'll try to read the defense and Hendon Hooker, a very experienced quarterback, a very capable quarterback. There's a lot of continuity on that Tennessee coaching staff. And there's a lot of comfort with Hendon Hooker and these receivers and even the offensive linemen. You know, I was in Knoxville uh, earlier today for their press conference and Jerome Carvin one of the offensive guards said, you know, there's little tricks that the linemen use to get back on the ball before the defense, right? Because the defense is all swarming to the ball, right? Playing through the whistle. Well, the offense, once they've thrown their blocks and the plays downfield, they start to run to get set up for the next play. That's one of their little secrets of how they're snapping a ball off once every 14 and a half seconds, which is the fastest pace in the country. Kirby Smart defenses have done a pretty good job against these hurry up teams in the past. But a lot of that has to do with forcing incompletions and putting them in tough down and distance situations where they're not in such a hurry. So first down is going to be very important. Georgia's ability to control the run game. Again, we're going to dive a lot deeper into this the second half of the show with Jeremy Pruitt. He's going to get talking a lot of X's and O's. And if you like to hear football jargon and football talk, Jeremy's bringing it because obviously he coached Tennessee three years. He recruited most all of the starters on that team. And he knows Kirby and, and Kirby's system from the time he coached at Alabama uh, alongside Kirby for six years. So that's going to be some really cool insight there. Another big game this weekend, Alabama is at LSU, the Crimson Tide, an overwhelming 12-point favorite. I know Tiger Stadium is supposed to be all that. And, and listen, I think Brian Kelly has done an unbelievable job. You know, I've been a proponent of his hire. Uh, I think he's very underrated. I know that he wasn't exactly well-received, um, but the guy's doing a great job. And even if Brian Kelly and LSU loses to Alabama, I still think LSU is on the comeback trail with the amount of talent in that state, his coaching acumen, and he'll be able to bring some other guys in there and kind of uh, really build that culture, develop that staff to where he wants it to be. Remember, a couple key coaches of his state at Notre Dame, not doing so well this year. But Brian Kelly, I think, doing a great job. Jane Daly is a good quarterback, but he's not good enough to beat Alabama. And, and that's something that you definitely want to watch. That's going to be an interesting game. Kentucky at Missouri, uh, you know, here's an, another contest that you just kind of wonder about. I mean, Kentucky just got thrashed at Tennessee, 44 to six. Didn't see that coming. Will Levis, three interceptions, less than 100 yards passing. I mean, that really kind of put Stetson and Georgia on notice. They did that to the Kentucky offense with Chris Rodriguez, the SEC's leading returning rusher. He never really got going either. Uh, but now they go to Missouri. This is a tough Missouri team. Missouri went in and beat South Carolina and snapped a four-game win streak. Carolina hadn't lost 
since Georgia went in there, beat them 48 to six earlier this year. So Missouri's showing some bite. Uh, that's going to be an intriguing game. Uh, Kentucky trying to get a little momentum. They'll be seeing Georgia a couple weeks down the road. Missouri, Mississippi State, of course, is the team on deck. Florida at AM. Now that's intriguing. AM, a four point favorite. The Gators thinking they found something in the second half, trying to build off. Uh, that 17-point, you know, splurt that they had against George in the third quarter. AM now has lost four games in a row under Jimbo Fisher. I didn't think that was possible. But Lane Kiffin and the Rebels able to beat them 31-28 last Saturday night. And how about Lane Kiffin trolling Jimbo Fisher after the game when Cole Kubelik asked him, what Halloween costume might you wear? He said, maybe I'll go dressed as the Joker. Uh, you know, making a reference to Jimbo Fisher calling him and Lane Kiffin clowns. Well, Kiffin wasn't done yet. He, he goes on Twitter, uses his dog's Twitter to troll Jimbo more and, and about this whole clown comment, won't let it go. And, you know, I just don't know if Jimbo Fisher is the kind of guy you want to mess with. I mean, he's he's pretty angry. And at some point, Lane Kiffin's going to cross paths with him again, maybe at spring meetings next year, uh, presuming that both coaches are still uh, in the SEC. Uh, one coach who won't be is Brian Harson. He was fired earlier today. I, I don't think this is really shocking news. I think we were all kind of waiting. What's interesting about this is that the Mississippi AD is, you know, reportedly going to go there and be the new uh, Auburn AD. So why are you firing this guy the week of the Mississippi State Auburn game? The timing just seems awkward. Curious to me. Uh, you just kind of wonder, well, what does that ha- What happens with Mississippi State next? You bring in a new AD. What does this do for Mike Leach's job security? Do you think Mike Leach has done a great job there? Has he done a good enough job? Or will the next AD maybe want his own guy? Um, so anytime you see a change like this, whether it's coaching or AD, you know, you got to wonder what the domino effect is going to be. So Brian Harson out uh, early report. You saw Brenton Cox was dismissed from Florida. Uh, you know, I know that Brenton started his career here and, and left and went to Florida after 2019, excuse me, right before uh, the 2020, 2019 season. Uh, of course, he set out in 2019, didn't play till the COVID year, but I was a little disappointed. And I know a lot of Georgia fans, uh, you know, didn't necessarily appreciate Brenton's talk on Twitter and him poking fun. But, you know, the Brenton Cox I met with last Wednesday struck me as a very, you know, humble guy that, you know, grew up in a Georgia family and his dad's a big Georgia fan and he's just having fun with former teammates and, you know, maybe not realizing, um, you know, just how uptight, uh, you know, he was making some people, but I think he was poking fun at former teammates and having fun with it. But for whatever reason, now he's been dismissed uh, from the Florida football team, Billy Napier, making that announcement earlier. Like I said, kind of feel bad for the guy in that sense. You never want to see anybody's future get derailed. Uh, you hope that maybe Brenton can, um, you know, get a free agent workout or still do some po- things postseason. Or maybe he comes back and plays another year uh, somewhere. I know he's got another year of eligibility left, so that's something to watch. Uh, Brenton Cox, uh, obviously the Gators were unable uh, to stop the the uh, Georgia offense. Really, Georgia only stopped themselves. You know, talking with Stetson Bennett after the game, he said, you know, turn the ball over. Uh, Kenny McIntosh got stripped from behind. Stetson underthrew Dejon Edwards, says, yeah, I should have checked it down to Darnell. But, you know, he said, look, they didn't stop us. We stopped ourselves. And that's kind of the Georgia mentality is, you know, when Georgia executes and when Stetson makes the right reads and the right throws, then they don't feel like they can be stopped. It's a matter of execution. It's not like they're going to run into some team that's too talented to overcome or with some scheme that Todd Munkin can't solve. It's controlled by Georgia. 
And, and that's why these guys don't get nervous because they feel like they control their own destiny with their ability to execute in their discipline and their preparation this week. And a lot's going into this game. Again, one versus two. Uh, ESPN game day is going to be here. SEC Nation is going to be here. Uh, you know, just a huge weekend in Athens. And I know a lot of people are excited about that. Don't get many opportunities like that. But that's going to be really, really special. I had somebody ask me today, you know, what happens to the loser? Of Georgia, Tennessee. Obviously, the winner becomes the odds-on favorite to win the East and go to the SEC championship game. But could the loser still get in the playoff? They could, but I'd say it's less than 50-50 for a couple of reasons. One, you know, the loser still has to finish out their schedule, and both of these teams have losable games left. Georgia has road games against Kentucky and Mississippi State. And while neither one of those teams on the surface would seem too dangerous, if you're coming off a loss, one, that can put a dent in your team morale, but two, playing on the road in the SEC. We saw how Georgia struggled against Missouri earlier this year. Mississippi State can be tricky, and so can Kentucky, and the weather in both of those places in November uh, can get a bit sticky as well. So one, the teams have to continue to win to have a chance to go to the playoff, but two, I think whoever wins this game, for the loser to go to the playoff, the winner is going to have to win the SEC, and preferably over a one-loss Alabama. So that looks like a very impressive win, right? So you, the team, you know, whoever loses this game has to start rooting for the team that beats them real fast because their only ticket to the playoff is if the winner of this game goes uh, and wins the SEC championship game. I also think Michigan-Ohio State is a factor. Um, you know, the loser of Michigan-Ohio State, you know, if both of those teams are undefeated and it's a one-loss Michigan or a one-loss Ohio State and you're comparing resumes against a one-loss Tennessee or a one-loss Georgia – Score of the game, uh, health of the team. These are things that will be factored in. And then finally, how many other undefeated teams are out there? Uh, you know, does TCU stay unbeaten? Does Clemson stay unbeaten? You know, what are we looking for in terms of the number of slots? Are we looking for, you know, the best one-loss team? Is there a one-loss team that wins a conference championship game? How would you measure, uh, you know, a one-loss uh, Oregon that wins its conference championship uh, versus a one-loss Tennessee, right? Would you just compare scores to Georgia? Uh, I'm not so sure that would be fair. Oregon played them the first weekend of the season. So there's a lot to think about. Tomorrow night, Tuesday night, 745, they're going to announce the college football playoff rankings, ratings. This is different than the polls and the football writers poll that I vote in. Uh, this is the committee that actually picks now, the committee has been known to juggle things and move teams around, but it'll be interesting to get that first read. Will they have Georgia number one? Will they have Tennessee number one? Will they have Ohio State number one? Could Michigan? You know, you just kind of wonder, how do you evaluate Georgia's season if you're the college football playoff committee? The only ranked team Georgia beat was in the opener against Oregon. Now, you know, you can say, well, Tennessee's got a more impressive red of May because they beat more teams. But I'd say, well, there's only one common opponent. And Georgia was more impressive against Florida at a neutral site than Tennessee was against Florida at home. So for every argument, there's kind of a counter argument. And you just kind of wonder what the consensus is on the first rankings. Again, the first rankings don't mean anything. It's those final rankings after the conference championship games. It'll determine the four playoff teams and then they'll slot the teams into the New Year's Six. So uh, a lot going on in the next few days. Obviously, a lot of news already. There'll be more news later in the week. I've done some stories uh, the Stetson Bennett story, we talked about him, uh, did a story on the stock report, the players whose stock is soaring. And coming up now in just a few minutes, 
Uh, Jeremy Pruitt is going to break this game down uh, deep, and you're going to want to stick around for that. Right after this, I want to take a moment now to recognize our sponsor, Ingles, all the things that Ingles does comes through for us. They're undefeated in my book. Thank you, Ingles, for your sponsorship. And now let's recognize Ingles. And when we come back, Jeremy Pruitt. Did you know that Ingles sells more organics than any other store? Or that they run their own dairy? Or that they only serve USDA choice and prime meat? Did you know that they have more local craft beer than any place else? Or that they have energy smart stores? Or that they professionally slice and package imported cheese from Europe? Did you know about their giant international aisle, local farm partnerships, curbside pickup, wine department? Or that they donate 3,956 meals a day to local food banks? Well, now you do. It's all in the bag. Ingles, low prices, love the savings. Well, welcome back to the program. And uh, as usual, we have uh, Coach Jeremy Pruitt joining us on our Monday Ingles on the Beach show. And, and Jeremy, uh, you know, we start out with, uh, you know, some tough news Georgia fans found out about last Friday. Uh, Coach Dooley had been sick. I think you and, and most folks in the Georgia community that, that know the Georgia program well knew that. And yet it was still kind of hard uh you know to believe you know the, the marine that you know finally passed uh last friday about five o'clock you had some time here at the university of georgia it seems like coach dooley knew everyone uh, associated with the program i guess i'd ask uh, about maybe your dealings with coach dooley while you were at georgia and, and your thoughts on uh coach dooley yeah you know i had an opportunity to meet him a couple of times and uh you know for me growing up in the south when when you think about the sec uh, to me, you, my thoughts, you know, go straight to Coach Bryant and, and Coach Dooley, you know, Coach Dye, uh, kind of old heads that, um, you know, built programs up, um, I, I, you know, what Coach Dooley did at Georgia and the time that he put in there with him and his family and uh, just listening. I used to really enjoy listening to the stories of, of Coach Rick talking about when he first got the job and uh, how how Coach Dooley helped mentor him being a a young head coach and all the things that were going on. It was um, it's probably some of my uh, most fond memories of, of, of being in Athens was listening to those, those stories. I mean, it just, uh, just the legacy that he's left there at the university of Georgia. And um, you know, you, and I, I've had an opportunity to work with Derek and uh, and, you know, talking about his dad and, you know, being a coach's son. So uh, yeah, I know it's tough for the the Dooley family and University of Georgia, but what a legacy they left. Yeah, no doubt about it. They'll be playing on Dooley Field Saturday at 3.30. Before we look forward to Tennessee-Georgia game, want to recap last week's game, and then Tennessee just absolutely manhandled Kentucky. I guess two questions I have for you. One, you know, you, you recruited most of the guys and coached a lot of these guys that are out there playing. Is there still any – Emotional connection, you know, knowing the families like you do, having coached these players, seeing what they're doing. Do you, do you take any, uh, I don't know, pride or is the word for it when you see these guys growing into a team that's number two in the nation, one, and then two, uh, I guess just your takeaway of just what a destruction that was in Kentucky. I mean, you just don't see Kentucky get pushed around like that very often. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm still in contact some with some of the families and players and uh, just really from an encouragement standpoint, um, it, it is, you know, you you want to see people that you have ties to, you want to see them have success. And uh, it's it's been exciting for me to watch these guys grow as a team this fall and 
um, you know, put themselves in a, in a really good position here with the college football playoffs and the SEC championship. And uh, they got a great challenge this weekend. But you go back and look at the Kentucky game. It's kind of what we talked about last week. I, I felt like that, you know, Tennessee would just score too many points. Uh, but I, I thought one of the things that stuck out to me in that game was uh, to kind of continue to see some confidence on Tennessee's defense. Um, and uh, finding ways to get turnovers, playing fast, uh, you know, and uh, I think you got to give uh, the coaches there credit on the defensive side of uh, continuing to call an aggressive game. Uh, and I think they've done that, uh, you know, dating back to the Alabama game. You know, I know Alabama put a lot of points on them, but it wasn't because they sat back and waited. Uh, they were very aggressive in the game. So when you talk about calling an aggressive game plan, what when we talk about uh, what are some of the elements of an aggressive game plan versus a maybe a game plan that's not as aggressive? Well, I mean, just uh, mixing in, uh, you know, whether it's simulated pressures with four guys, whether it's five-man pressures, six-man pressures, uh, pushing the pocket, uh, you know, uh, changing up the coverage, you know, bringing five and five and playing man to man, bringing five and playing fire zone, bringing five guys and and playing uh, a form of two trap. Uh, you know, uh, you see that uh, and you'll see it this weekend, I think, from both teams. Uh, you know, Georgia's going to do the same thing on their side of the ball. But I think uh, some of that with Tennessee is, is kind of um, – building in some aggression with their defensive players and building in confidence, putting the other team on their heels. Yeah, I like that. You know, and, and I think that when you have an offense like Tennessee does, it's almost like a, a basketball team that presses. It's like, okay, every now and then you're going to beat us. Every now and then you're going to throw over the top. We're going to put our offense back on the field, but every now and then we might create some havoc. Um, and I think when you've got that kind of explosive offense, that's when I've seen teams – you know, it seems like they're more willing to take those chances, as you said, with the, the different pressure packages come from different directions. Uh, let's switch it over. Florida, Georgia was an interesting football game. Uh, of course, Florida uh, drew within eight points in the third quarter. We saw Georgia race out to a, a 28 to three lead, just really handled Florida in the first half. And then the Gators score 17 unanswered in the third quarter. Uh, what takeaways from that game? Well, I thought from the first half standpoint, I thought Georgia was about as impressive as any team I've seen this fall. Uh, but, you know, Georgia's still got a young football team in some areas. Uh, and it, it's easy. Um, you know, you, you you jump out on a big lead like that, and uh, it's easy to relax. Uh, and I think maybe there might have been a little bit of youth shown uh, from that standpoint. Uh, but uh, when they when Florida got it to eight points, you what'd you see? You saw Georgia take the game back over. Um, and that's what good football teams do. That's probably a really good uh, teaching moment uh, for Kirby and his staff uh, during that game. So uh, but I thought Georgia looked really, really good, uh, especially early on in the latter part of that game. What do you think about Anthony Richardson? You know, there seems to be a little bit of a jury out, uh, you know, for some. I mean, I look at this guy and I say, what an arm, what an athlete, uh, pocket presence. You're obviously a pretty trained defensive eye. Um, who would you compare Anthony Richardson to? What would you say about Anthony Richardson's future? 
Well, I think he has a, a, a great future ahead of him. Uh, he's still got to develop in a lot of areas. I mean, you look at, to me, I kind of compare him to the quarterback at Tennessee. Hennon Hooker's 24 years old. How, how old is Anthony Richardson? Where, the, where are they at at the same point in their career? You know, I think a lot of times uh, we as coaches, fans, everybody involved, the expectations that we put on these young players who have a lot of ability, uh, we want it for them really fast. And uh, sometimes it takes time. Uh, and I think just uh, – I think he'll get a lot of development there with Coach Napier, uh, and he'll continue to grow as a football player, and it'll be somebody that they can build their program around. I know Georgia fans kind of snickered when when Billy Napier said he felt something turned around in the third quarter, but uh, you've been in that situation, taking over a program that you know had had a lot of momentum, and uh, you were able to put together an eight-game winning streak at one point, and I don't know when you felt that turn, but uh, moral victories. No coach ever stands up there and says that, they want a moral victory. Certainly players don't play for that. But does Florida take something away from the way they competed in the second half? Could that be a building block for Billy Napier and their, the future of their program? Well, as dominant as Georgia was for the first 30 minutes of that game, uh, yeah, I think absolutely. You look, Georgia's got uh, one of the best, if not the best football team in the country. And you look for a span of, what was it, 10, 12, 15 minutes there that, you know, that Florida outplayed them. I mean, call it like it is, they outplayed them. Uh, so I think they can go back and look and say, okay, look at the things that we did here um, uh, and, and, and try to build upon that. I mean, so uh, they very easily, Florida very easily could have just threw in the towel and said, you know, that's enough at halftime, but they didn't. They responded, which I think it says a lot uh, about the direction of their program. Yeah, it really does. In fact, uh, you and I were talking earlier and you were a little, uh, I don't know, surprised the right word, but, you know, Missouri goes into South Carolina where Beamers won four in a row. It seems to have a lot of momentum, uh, Jeremy, that, you know, every team, we just take it for granted that everybody's, you know, all in 100 all the time, but there, there becomes a reality. And, you know, you've coached a long time uh, against teams when you've kind of seen, you know, you know, this team doesn't look quite like they did a month ago before they lost three. What does that say about Eli Drinkwitz? I, I kind of wondered about the future of the Missouri program, and uh, heck, they got a game left with Tennessee. I mean, they were up on Georgia by 10. I, I, I never know what to make of Missouri football, it seems. I don't know what I'm going to get from from week to week, but they, they seem to show up this week in South Carolina. Well, I think it was, to me, I think more about South Carolina when you look at uh, they had an opportunity, uh, and, and uh, you got to give Missouri credit. Uh, for coming there and, and getting a couple of turnovers and finding a way to win on the road in the SEC, which is not easy. But you look at South Carolina, it was a great opportunity for them to put five wins in a row. That's hard to do in any league. Uh, and it's an opportunity that they let slide by. So it'll be interesting this week. Uh, South Carolina plays Vanderbilt, and they, they don't need to let uh, Missouri beat them twice. Uh, so – this Vanderbilt team is plenty capable of beating South Carolina, so they better have a really good plan, really good week. And, and I think this will put them bowl eligible if they beat uh, Vanderbilt. And they still have uh, Tennessee and Clemson left to play, so they need to get this one. You know what? You're absolutely right. And, and as for Vanderbilt, they took Missouri uh, right to the very end. Now, Georgia stomped them pretty good. But, you know, when, when those Vandy boys decide to show up, 
<laughs> they're, they're not too shabby. A uh, couple programs we know are going to show up uh, this weekend. Alabama at LSU under the lights at Tiger Stadium. These teams have had a bye week. So, you know, we say bye week and, and you know, well, what does that mean? You want to get some guys healthy, and but you want to do some one-on-ones. I mean, kind of give me an idea, like, what is a, what is the, you know, kind of the overarching theme of a bye week as a head coach, an assistant coach? What are some things that happen, do you think, during this bye week for Alabama LSU? Well, I know for particularly Alabama, um, they're, they're going to work on themselves uh, and, and kind of go back to some fundamentals and do uh, good on good. Uh, they're going to pick out some future opponents, some things, uh, whether it's Auburn. Uh, I'm not sure who else is left on their schedule, but they'll – Ole Miss. Ole Miss, there we go. All, uh, Auburn, Ole Miss. So they'll work on those two opponents. Uh, they'll get a head start on LSU. So uh, – and they'll try to get healthy. Uh, so that's that's I know that's what they'll do in Tuscaloosa. I'm not very familiar with what will happen in, in Baton Rouge, but I'm sure it'll be something similar. We hear so much about Tiger Stadium under the lights. I mean, SEC road games. I think you told us very early this year that if you're an opposing coach, you want that noon start. It's a lot different than 7 p.m. I mean, is there is there some extra to Tiger Stadium? Is that one of those places? Well, I can tell you at night. uh it can be a rowdy place. It's a tough place to win. It's a, a tough place to operate. Um, you know, and it'll, it'll be interesting in this game. If you look at LSU's two losses to Florida State and to Tennessee, they got off to very poor starts in the game. Um, and, and so th- it'll be important for them in this game to get off to a good start. Uh, I'm not saying jump out to a 10 to nothing lead. I'm just talking about let's break even for a quarter here. Uh, to keep the fan to, to, to keep the the fans involved and, and and let Tiger Stadium be an advantage to them. You've been on that uh, side of the fence as a defensive coordinator. We always hear so much about the other team having so many plays, you know, pre pre written, you know, before the game. They know what they're going to do. What are you trying to do in the first quarter? I know Kirby said one time, uh, you know, playing against Gus Malzahn. He said, you know, you just try to survive the first quarter till you kind of figure out what they're going to do. How long does it take typically for a coordinator to figure out, okay, this, or, or is it kind of like, okay, this is their base or here's what, here's what they're trying. Here's some things. Um, how long does it really take before you kind of get a feel as a defensive play caller? Well, I think uh, it depends uh, on who you're going against. Some, some, Offensive coordinators are on like a 10-play script. Some of them may be on a 15. But for me as a defensive coordinator, I wanted to come out of the gate being an attacking style of defense. Uh, I wanted to put them on their heels. Uh, I, I can remember uh, there was a few games that I, I told Coach Saban, I said, listen, I said, I don't know how many they're going to score in the first quarter, uh, but this quarterback's going to know we came to play by the end of the first quarter, so we're going to hit him as many times as we can. Uh, so that was kind of – uh, my thought process on it. I think a lot of it dictates on what kind of team you have. Uh, you know, uh, when I was coaching at Alabama, we had w- one of the more talented defenses in the country, so we could do things like that, right? Uh, I think it's important to also do things that, that your team can have success doing. You know, if I, I go back to my, my first year at Georgia. Uh, we had a very young secondary, so my rule of thumb was we never blitzed on the opposing team side of the 50. They had to at least cross the 50 before we started blitzing just because we didn't want to put that much pressure on the young secondary uh, unless it was third down. So I think 
Uh, there's a couple of ways to look at it, you know, philosophically. I know for me, I like to be the aggressor, but you also have to understand uh, who you're playing with and play to the strengths of your team. I'll ask you this, and I know LSU's talented. And, uh, you know, for the most part, you know, we, we look around the Southeastern Conference and we see some pretty trusted, proven coaches at each stop. Brian Kelly came down here as a bit of a curiosity. He was at Notre Dame before, and, you know, he was the winningest coach there. But because of the way Alabama handled I believe you were on that 2012 staff with Kirby Smart. Um, or were you already at Florida State in 2012? No, I, was, I was there. I was I was Okay. There. The way the way you all handled them in the national championship game, it it was almost like Brian Kelly was kind of like, ah, you know, how good can he possibly be? Uh, look at the way Alabama handled them in the national title game. They lost a, a college football playoff game. And, you know, I always thought he was a bright guy because I worked up in the Big Ten for four years. And and I thought I saw a lot of X's and O's and he just struck me as bright. But there were a lot of questions. If we seen enough to answer the question about what kind of coach Brian Kelly is and and you have prepared for his teams before. Um, you may have had a better read or a better understanding. What would we say about Brian Kelly and LSU, regardless of what happens in this game against Alabama? Yeah, I was a little shocked when he when he took the job uh, going from Notre Dame uh, to LSU. But then when you listen to his press conference and the reasons that he wanted to, he wants to win a national championship. And he feels like he's got a better chance at LSU. And if you look over the last 20 years, Coach Saban, Coach Miles, Coach Ogeron, it's three different coaches that have won national championships in, in Baton Rouge. Uh, you know, there's a lot of high school talent within that state. Um, the fan base, the university is completely behind, um, you know, the football program. So he's right. There's a great opportunity there. Uh, and, I, you know, when I watched the first game this year against Florida State, I was kind of shaking my head a little bit. But, you know, they come back in that game. Uh, and had a chance to win the football game and, um, you know, and have put together, to me, some impressive games, uh, just really finding a way, uh, keeping poise, continuing to coach. Uh, you know, hey, is the talent on LSU's roster going to improve? Yes, it will. Uh, it, it, it's going to improve. Um, they had a lot of departures after the Ed O's run. Um, firing. So it's going to improve. Uh, and and I, I see L LSU as being, uh, you know, the force that they've always been in the West. Uh, and I think Brian Kelly uh, will have an opportunity to do what he came to LSU to do. How long does it take? And I know it varies from place to place, but when you come in as the new head coach, and you've been through this and you've been on new staffs, but how long does it take to, to kind of get that culture? I mean, the first year, um, it, it seems like there's a lot of moving pieces, right? We're watching what's happening in Florida with Billy Napier, and he's trying to, as I said, he's the Nick Saban starter kid, I call him. He's trying to bring the, the Alabama system to Florida. I'm not, still not exactly convinced it's going to work down there uh, like it has other places. But um, how long does it take before you can say, yeah, this is, this is my culture? Because on the one hand, uh, I've heard Derek Dooley use the phrase year zero, but on the other, I've heard Steve Spurrier tell me, not just a bunch of excuses. If you're a good coach, you ought to be able to go out there and win. What's what's the reality? Probably somewhere in between, I'm guessing. Yeah, I, I don't know so much about culture. I think if you look at, I mean, hey, there, there's there's so many changes in college football every year. Uh, there's a lot of comparisons, right? To me, you look and see what did you inherit, you know? So when Lincoln Riley inherited uh, the Oklahoma team from Bob Stoops, uh, it's a pretty good deal, right? You know, <laughs> when, when Coach Day 
uh, inherited Ohio State, from, you know, Urban Meyer, it's a pretty good deal. You know, I think when Urban Meyer followed, um, who was it he followed at uh, uh, Florida? Um, uh, was, oh, uh, crap. Yeah. That, that was Illinois' coach. There was a lot of talent. Ron Zook. Ron, Ron Zook. Zook. Ron Zook. And Mike Loxley were on that staff. They had recruited a lot of really good players in there. Hey, when Kirby went to Georgia, uh, he inherited a lot of really good players. Uh, now, how long does it take for the, the, the program to take on the personality of the head coach? I think that probably varies based off uh, maybe support, uh, maybe the type of leadership you have within your team. Uh, so not it's tough to compare every single job to another one because there's there's all there's all kind of different circumstances involved. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I guess I, I didn't plan on going in this direction, but here we are. We're kind of circling back to the beginning. Uh, you know, as I said, you've recruited most of this Tennessee team. Josh Heupel's having success. You're pleased for the kids in it. We've had John every week. I, I think you've spoken as well about Josh as anybody. Uh, but to, I always wonder when you hear about a, a coach say, well, you know, we didn't necessarily have the personnel. A lot of these guys that Hypo, you know, Jalen Hyatt was a guy you recruited. You ran a pro style system. They run this wide open spread. And yet that talent seems to translate. I guess that would be the question I would ask about, you know, how difficult is it when you inherit guys that maybe you wouldn't have picked that guy, not because he's not good, but because he doesn't fit your style versus taking guys like Kirby had with Chubb and Michelle and being able to make it work in your system. Yeah, I think uh, especially offensively starts at the quarterback position, right? Uh, and uh, I, I'll be the first to tell you that when Hendon Hooker signed with Tennessee, I had no idea how good he could possibly be. Uh, and Josh has done a fantastic job to develop him. Uh, he fits the system that they run. Uh, and hey, I, I did know that there was good young wide receivers uh, and a, a good core uh, skill position and O-line uh, coming back offensively. Uh, so, you know, and I, I think they've taken, they've obviously taken it and run with it, right? I mean, they're, they're scoring points almost, I mean, probably more so than the 2019 LSU team. Um, you know, so, um, I do think if you look around the league right now, uh, my question is how how deep is the SEC? Me and you talked about this earlier today. I think there's three teams in the SEC right now that uh, have really good football teams. And I think if you look, they probably got the three best quarterbacks that are playing the best right now when you look at Tennessee, Georgia, and Alabama. Uh, so it's a quarterback uh, driven league. If you've got one, you got a chance to beat anybody. If you don't, you better keep signing or recruiting until you get one. Well, Jamie, we talked about hand and hooker. And, and I guess I would ask you, you know, between what you saw when you recruited him back then at Virginia Tech to the player that he is now, and obviously he's developed, but what's the difference between the guy you saw then and the guy we see now and what makes him so hard to defend? Yeah, I think uh, the big thing that stuck out to us was, you know, his size, uh, his athleticism, his arm talent. Um, and we were looking for somebody that that um, didn't make a lot of mistakes. And and he didn't make a lot of mistakes uh, at Virginia Tech. Uh, and if he did make one, he kept his poise and didn't let it turn into another one. So um, he was a guy that we felt like that you could 
build your offense around that uh, gave you some athleticism at quarterback. You know, comparing him and Virginia Tech's offense to what they're doing now at Tennessee, there's really no comparison. I mean, uh, Tennessee, they're wide open. It's a vertical uh, pass game that, that, that throws the ball down the field a lot, uh, uses his – uh, especially in short yardage, red area goal line. Uh, they use his ability to run the football, uh, and he can extend plays, makes a lot of plays with his feet. Yeah, no, he does. And clearly, you know, what Josh has done with them, impressive. We see Hannon is a, a Heisman Trophy candidate. He's meshed really well with a lot of those offensive linemen that, that he inherited and receivers. And it's been pretty impressive to watch the whole Tennessee machine in progress. And then flip side, Stetson Bennett, you know, and, and I've talked to you about Stetson a few times. You've had to play and, and prepare for Stetson. And uh, and what would you say just about the Stetson Bennett that you saw a couple of years ago in 2020 versus the guy we see now? And what makes him difficult out there to prepare for and play with, play against? Well, a lot of similarities, except uh, when you look at their stature. Uh, Stetson has a, a pretty big arm for a, a smaller guy. Uh, he's instinctive, can extend with his feet. He obviously has a really good grasp of the offense. Uh, I think offensively, it's two totally different uh, uh, concepts offensively. Uh, I think Tennessee's more into the uh, they're, they're simple in their scheme. Uh, they use and play with speed uh, and tempo to try to use that as an advantage, whereas you look at Georgia, they can do that. I think they put a lot on the quarterback. Uh, they allow him to get in and out of uh, – uh, bad plays. Uh, if they've got a run play, uh, they give them the option of, of maybe changing it to the other side, or maybe they've got a run pass uh, call to where uh, if the box is light, they run the ball. If it's if it's heavy, uh, they give Stetson the ability to get out of it and get to a pass. So they put a lot on him. Uh, so uh, hey, you're you're talking about two of the better quarterbacks in the country. Uh, it'll be interesting, Stetson. Uh, has experience playing in these type of games, uh, and and Hendon is is obviously played really good versus Alabama. Uh, he's played really good against everybody, but this will be another opportunity for him uh, to kind of showcase uh, how he's developed as a quarterback and could put himself up uh, to me as the front runner for the Heisman. Yeah, I really could. I know we we talked about that last week. You you made the case for him over C.J. Stroud and Buckeyes struggled a little bit with Penn State. That's going to be a that's going to be a horse race to the finish for the Heisman for sure. And you know, obviously, it'd be big for Tennessee to get a win here. But I think Hooker could make it to New York even if he loses to Georgia, just because of the type of seasons he's had. And of course, Tennessee leads the nation in total offense as well as scoring offense. And and Hendon Hooker, well, I believe, with the top five QB rating, this is very. Uh, friendly QB rating system. I was going to ask you about, you know, uh, the advantage, I suppose, for Kirby Smart. And, and look, I, I know Kirby does a lot of his own stuff now, but the base of his defense, a lot of the philosophies and principles are very comparable to Alabama. How valuable is that Alabama film for Kirby Smart? How much can he, uh, you know, go to the doctor with that? Or how much can he learn from that, uh, number one? And number two, you know, we talked about stopping the run earlier and the importance of that when you play Tennessee. Uh, saying it and doing it are two different things. How do you? How would you go about that? So one, uh, this, the similarity between the Georgia defense and Alabama defense, if that gives Kirby a big advantage, having seen this Tennessee system against it. And two, uh, you mentioned stopping the run game. I mean, how do you go about that while still 
you know, guarding against this vert these vertical threats? Well, I think definitely watching the Alabama game, Kirby's going to learn what not to do. Uh, he does not want to copy that game plan uh, by no means, uh, letting the the one of the fastest guys in the country run down on top of the safeties uh, and rushing three guys. Uh, to me, I think one thing that's going to stick out, if you look at Tennessee, uh, Hen and Hooker, they're a vertical passing team, right? They run the football and they're a vertical passing team. But if you look, on their on their play action passes or their poke action passes, lots of times he doesn't take a drop. Uh, so uh, his set point is going to be at five five and a half yards from the center. Uh, I think you got to create one on ones, uh, and and if you do that, you know I look for Jalen Carter uh, and and no, I'm not taking away any anybody from anything from anybody from Tennessee, but this guy's one of the best interior D line pass rushers in the country, uh, you've got to push the pocket against Tennessee. You've got to get Hendon Hooker off the spot. I think with the splits of the wide receivers that Tennessee plays with, uh, it's tough to bracket the guy with a, 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 a star or nickel inside out. He's going to have to be outside in, which to me, therefore, you got to use that as an opportunity to, to double the slot guy and double somebody else. Uh, but it also you're lined up in leverage to where you can bring your five-man pressures and and condense the pocket and push the pocket and 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 make Hendon throw uh, maybe getting off the spot. Uh, so there's going to be some one-on-ones down the field. We said last time in the Alabama game where the where the uh, official is going to let them play. Uh, we thought that that might come in, you know, be a factor in the game. It could possibly be a factor in this game. Uh, but I look for Georgia to have a really good plan. Hey, I, I feel like Kirby Smart and his staff are right now are the um, the best defensive staff in the country um, and it, going against the best offensive team in the country right now. So we it ought to be a, a great uh, chess match. I'm looking forward to watching it. Um, so, but I, that's what I see. I see some five-man pressures uh, mixed in with four-man rushes. And I see, I see Georgia, uh, adding on to the running backs. If they're playing man-to-man, -man, they're going to have quick add-ons to the running backs to try to fill up the pass rush lanes to keep Hendon Hooker from being able to get outside. Yeah, no doubt. You just get the feeling that Kirby's got to hit him. I'm trying to remember what game uh, that uh, Tennessee played this year. You know, look, Hendon Hooker's human. He gets hit a couple times, and it's, it did slow him down. It did take him off his game. There were two or three possessions. Uh, I want to say, I, I don't know if it might have been the Florida game where he got hit. And, and in fact, look, it affects everybody. I mean, there's no shame in that. That's human nature. If a quarterback gets hit, it it creates doubt. It, it, it's why you said you had game plans like that at Alabama, because you wanted that quarterback to know that he'd been hit. And, you know, now, now there's a few. I still remember John Chavis telling me one time, Jeremy, about, um, you know, Jay Cutler, before everybody knew who Jay Cutler was. we were I was doing the preseason All-SEC team for Athlon, and I said, hey, uh, you know, who are some quarterbacks you'd put on the preseason team? And he said, that quarterback at Vanderbilt's pretty good. And I laughed. He said, what are you laughing about? I said, he plays for Vanderbilt. He said, let me tell you something, Mike. You can knock that joker down, and he keeps getting up. And those are the guys you worry about. There are not many of them, and you've coached against them. You could probably probably three or four come right to mind for you. Um, I, I don't know. You look at Hendon, and I, I saw him in a press conference today. He's pretty slight. I mean, he's not the big, he's not Anthony Richardson. Anthony Richardson, take a lick and keep going, although it looked like he got a hell of a Charlie horse from Bullard in the first play of that game uh, up there in Jacksonville. But 
you know, this is not a big, thick Cam Newton kind of guy. He is kind of slender, you know, and, and I just wonder. And, and Jalen Carter, you know, and, and I, I'll let you explain it because you're an expert at this, but Kirby tells us all the time, and some folks don't get it. They just look at the numbers. Well, how many sacks did you get? Sacks, you know, you can disrupt a quarterback without finishing. And uh, and that's what, what Carter does. Even if he doesn't make the play, maybe somebody else does, right? Yeah, so just getting the push up the up the middle, uh, creating one on ones, uh, tip balls, and if you if you look at Tennessee, uh, where they really get going is after a an explosive play uh, in the run game uh, or an explosive play in the pass game. The thing that they do not want is they don't want incomplete passes. This goes into all these guys that run the hurry up offense. As soon as it's an incomplete pass, now everything slows down. Uh, and, and part of their edge uh, that they feel like they're playing with is the tempo that they play. It's tough to play with tempo after incomplete passes. So uh, getting Hen and Hooker off the spot, um, getting, getting to move around. Georgia's athletic enough that they will, they will, they'll, Hen and will make plays, uh, but they'll have a chance to, to run him down with spies and even with a, their four down rush. I mean, you're talking about Nolan Smith on the outside, they, they've got guys that can rush the quarterback. Uh, and guys that can finish. Uh, to me, the challenge is going to be – I'm anxious to see Georgia's secondary. Uh, how do they respond to last week? Uh, and it's something that I felt like even with last year's team, they were so dominant in their front seven. Uh, their, their secondary never got a lot of opportunities, uh, you know, just because how dominant they were in the front seven. Uh, and nobody could really get to them and attack them because they didn't have time. Uh, it'll be interesting on Saturday. They'll have plenty of opportunities because Tennessee's got some wide receivers that can run and, and finish on the ball down the field. Yeah, I think they dropped Beal down to end. You know, Nolan went out, uh, and Kirby said today, Jeremy, actually earlier, said he was doubtful with a peck. We thought it was, mm -hmm. you know, at the time, Kirby said shoulder. Then it turned into a peck, and it's doubtful. I mean, who knows? I mean, if listen, if I'm a coach, I'm not telling you if my best pass rusher is going to play or not. I'll let that work on your mind a little bit. You'd be crazy to tell the other team if the, if you knew for sure one way or the other. And they may not even know, but they got another guy in Robert Beal there. You know, they they just reload. Beal led the team in sacks. They drop him into that spot. And you're right about the secondary. You know, Keely Ringo kind of had the oil painting moment there with the pick six, but all year he got torched. He was the guy people were going at. You know, they had the kid from Clemson, Kendrick, on the other side. He's with the Rams playing in the NFL. And, you know, Keeley's gotten a lot better, but we're seeing teams go at him. We saw Florida beat him. Uh, you know, he's one of those 6'2", 2'10", 4'4", He's going to light it up at the combine, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's ready for, you know, coverage in the SEC against, you know, uh, some of these elite receivers. So they'll probably go at him. I think where Georgia is really strong is I really like Christopher Smith a lot. Uh, I think Chris Smith is super talented. Uh, I think he's worked his way up the draft boards. He's a third-year starter. He's beefed up. He's one of those program guys that, you know, you just you, you love how far this kid's come. He was playing behind the count, got pressed into action early when Richie got in the motorcycle wreck and wasn't really ready physically. But each year he's gotten better and better. And the guy next to him, and, and I guess I'd ask you this because you know the system plays, this this five-star Malachi Starks, I mean, some five-stars don't work out, but how hard is it, Jeremy, to get a guy, a true freshman? Now, granted, he got to go through spring, but for a true freshman to be playing in Kirby's system, and yeah, he was the one 
they got caught out of position against Florida. First time, Kirby said, loved it. Did he bounce back? No issue. But how difficult is it to prepare a true freshman to play that safety position in this kind of scheme? Well, I, I, it's been done uh, lots of times before, and it's been done by Kirby uh, and, and, and Will Muschamp and, of course, Glenn's on the staff. So if anybody can do it, those guys can do it. And Malachi was a – he was a very talented guy coming out, uh, very cerebral. So him being there in the spring, uh, you know, it, it, if you look at Georgia right now, you talk a little bit about culture. You know, Kirby's been there for, what, six, seven years now. Uh, and and so I'm sure the players are coaching each other, you know. So uh, with a group that just left, uh, how they've responded, how they're playing uh, so well this year. So it was, it was obviously – uh, a, a good room to walk into. Uh, they lose their defensive coordinator and they just kind of keep marching on, you know. So uh, that's that's when you're talking about you you have the right culture uh, and Georgia obviously has that. So, uh, yeah, you got to give credit to uh, the player and the coaches for preparing him and, and also the guys that play around him, you know. So, uh, but yeah, he's a very talented young man and uh, hey, they'd rather it happen last week than this week, right? No, that's for sure. And, and a lesson learned, right? And then flip side now, we talk about preparing for Tennessee and getting a push in the pocket, stopping the run, um, you know, the incompletions and how that that slows them down as much as anything. What about the other side? You know, you say, well, you know, Stetson can go to the line of scrimmage and, you know, they can change the blocking depending on what they see from the front where they they should theoretically always have leverage if they make the right call against the front. Uh, he can change run to pass. So you faced those kind of offenses before as a coordinator. I mean, how much cat and mouse is there and how dangerous is it? Because to me, it seems like you're playing chess real fast. And, you know, sometimes you may guess right. Sometimes you may guess wrong, you know, disguising. How quick do they snap it? Just seems like there's a lot going on. How do you attack? Because that's what you said you like to do. And that's probably what Tennessee is going to do. How do you attack an offense with a veteran quarterback that can change plays at the line of scrimmage so fluidly? Well, I think Tennessee is going to – I mean, excuse me, I think uh, Georgia is going to have an advantage there in the standpoint of uh, if you look at some of their pressures this year, it's almost like some of them have been a little bit telegraphed, especially if you play with a little bit of speed. And, and having the system, the Todd Munkin system, where they allow the quarterback uh, to change the protection, um, to maybe get them in and out of a run – a run pass play or change from one run to another run, I think gives Georgia an advantage. And I think, I don't think the game's going to be too big for Stetson Bennett. He's, he's obviously delivered in the biggest game uh, in college football last year. So uh, on the other hand, you're going to see Tennessee, you're going to see Hen and Hooker, they, especially on third down, or maybe when the, the clock is stopped and they're not playing with tempo, uh, they like to look and see what you're in. Um, and, and you see guys, and what you'll see from Georgia is um, you'll see them probably change. So when Tennessee changes, Georgia's going to change. So what you see may not be what you get, and then you think all of a sudden you're going to go from one time they change from uh, split safety to middle field coverage, and then the next time they change from split safety to pressure, from pressure to pressure. So that's the cat and mouse game, and can each side handle it from a standpoint of, um, you know, Georgia on defense and really Georgia on offense, because I think that's where the most changes will possibly happen. One versus two, Tennessee at Georgia. 
Coach, I, you know, these games are tough to pick. I'm not going to put you on the spot. <laughs> it's tough. It'd be tough to pick against your former, both of these programs. You know, you've got your relationship with Kirby and his staff and the players at Tennessee. But what I am going to ask you to do is give me your three keys to this football game. What's going to decide this game Saturday? Well, I think Georgia's going to block a field goal. I really believe that. If you look at Tennessee, even against Alabama on the game-winning field goal, uh, there was a lot of leakage in there. Uh, this past week against Kentucky, the same thing. You put Jalen Carter in there uh, and the best players there, there's a chance uh, to me when they block the field goal, are they going to scoop it and score? I, I really see Georgia blocking a field goal this week. Uh, <clears throat> to me, um, explosive plays for Georgia. Uh, how many explosive plays offensively will Georgia have? Uh, can they can they hit a few shots uh, down the field? You know, last year they got Cook a couple of times out there, matched up on on uh, Tennessee's linebackers and hit him on a sluggo. Uh, some easy plays, easy plays. This this does not want to get to a game to where Tennessee is creating all the explosive plays and Georgia's having to ground it all out because now it brings in the officiating. You know, it's easy to call a holding call. It's easy to call a lot of things there. Uh, so I think explosive plays for Georgia. Um, and and then the last thing to me is, is just turnovers. Uh, everything um, this year has went well for Tennessee to start the game. They have been really fast starters. Uh, so they've played from ahead a lot of, a lot of the games this year. Uh, how, how does Georgia start? Can they control the momentum early in the game? And can they do it with turnovers? I think that's going to be the difference in the game. I'm going to put my last thing on here too, Mike. I'm going to tell you, every year when you go to Knoxville, I don't know if they still do it, but used to, we always looked at it every year. They always show right before the team runs out of the tunnel or through the tee, you know, they have they have the big plays. Every, every, every uh, university does it, right? So there was always this play with Jamal Lewis, running over number 16 for the University of Georgia. And we used to give Kirby a hard time about it. And on the headphones right before the game, would say, here comes Kirby. Uh, let me tell you, he ain't forgot that. He ain't forgot that. This game means a lot to him uh, against Tennessee. So uh, I, there's no doubt I think he'll have the Bulldogs ready to play. I think, you're, I think you're spot on. Tennessee, one team that Kirby Smart never beat as a player. And uh, he has fared very well against the Volunteers. And, uh, yeah, this one does seem to pack a little bit of extra from old number 16, Kirby Smart. Jeremy, thank you so much for joining us. Your insight is is obviously incredible. Uh, your background with the programs. It's, it's nice to hear a former coach speak so well about his former players and the program. And, you know, you just you don't you know, a lot of people wouldn't necessarily expect that. But it's like, look here, man, these are real people and you get to know them. And this is kind of what you know, football is all about beyond what you see on television. There's people, there's relationships and, and people move on. And, um, you know, that's a pretty healthy and a pretty cool thing. So I want to thank Jeremy again for joining me. Remember every day at 10 a.m. Dog Nation Daily with Brandon Adams. Uh, Connor Riley does a Connor and coverage show on Sunday nights. And on Wednesday nights, it's Jeff's until Friday night, our go with the flow picks at 7 p.m. You might want to check that out as well. Uh, so for Jeremy Pruitt, this is Mike Griffith. Have a great week, everybody.